Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Service personnel and their families are feeling the cost of living crisis bite and it's causing concern for the Army's most senior soldier. People going to food banks and those people that are reaching out for second jobs. I think an issue that we have is that our soldiers are proud people and so getting that information out of them in the first place is quite hard. The British Army Sergeant Major appeals to people to speak up if they're struggling and tells us how the service is trying to help. As ministers try to update the UK's military master plan, the economic turmoil is eating away at their spending power. The worst case is that we just bimble on as we do and we don't repair what happened at the last integrated review where you saw a cut in the armed forces numbers. And we visit one of the new global hubs for the forces, which are part of that master plan. My father fought with the Omani army in the 1960s. I've been coming to Oman throughout my career. and That is, I think, representative of the strength of the relationship between our, our two nations. Unusually, we're going to start with economics. Inflation in the UK is at a 40-year high. The pound in your pocket will only buy around 90% of what it would have got you this time last year. It's causing a multi-billion pound headache for defence. But before we look into that, we focus on the huge worries it's causing for many ordinary servicemen and women. Their last pay rise was 3.75%, well below inflation, the rate that prices are now increasing. Bills for essentials, including energy, food and petrol, have all surged. Some in the forces say they're turning to food banks. Some are looking at second jobs to keep afloat. It's not gone unnoticed at the highest levels of defence. The Army's most senior soldier, the Army Sergeant Major, has told SITREP the cost of living is one of the main issues he's raising with top brass in his role as the voice of soldiers. But Warrant Officer Class 1 Paul Carney also told James Hurst that help is available and he's appealing to soldiers who are struggling financially to speak up. We've got, I think, a real worry because people for the first time in probably a generation are feeling a real impact on their wages. It's a bit of everything. Food's gone up, energy bills have gone up. And remember, we are an organisation that doesn't just worry about the day-to-day work, it's about our families and everything that encompasses our soldiers' life. So I'm really concerned because actually everything costs a lot more, our wages didn't go up in line with inflation, and so it is going to impact our people. And for me, how does it impact? Do our soldiers go looking for second jobs? Do they have to cut the way that they live? go home to see their families, and all this impacts on our people's mental well-being. Is there anything you can do to help as that voice of the ordinary soldier? So myself, along with the other single service warrant officers from the Navy and the Air Force, we speak to defence, the people there. Um, We advise them of the stories that are going on down on the ground level. So people going to food banks, people reaching out to charitable organisations and those people that are reaching out for second jobs. I think an issue that we have is that our soldiers are proud people, and so getting that information out of them in the first place is quite hard. I mean, when you talk about soldiers taking second jobs, reaching out to food banks, some people will be shocked to hear that. Just give us some context. How widespread is that, or is it isolated cases? 
I think at the moment it's isolated cases. I don't think it's everyone in the army. And there are, are certain groups that I think the cost of living will impact more. Certainly young families on young soldiers' wages is an area that I'm really concerned. And our foreign Commonwealth soldiers as well, a lot of those people send money home. And so they'd be looking at any support that they can pull on. So I don't think it's a whole army problem or a whole defence problem, but there are pockets of people that are struggling. And I think it's not the day-to-day -day living, it's when something goes wrong, when the car needs servicing, when it needs a new radiator, school fees, or something else that really impacts our people that takes away from the day-to-day -day living costs. We often hear the army, the, the armed forces talked about as a, as a family and families pulled together. But is there anything that the army can do to, to ease those pressures? Yeah, I, I, and I see different cases everywhere. So some people are allowing their soldiers to work from home certain days and that cuts down on the fuel costs. Some units, for example, rather than facilitating early knockoffs on a Friday and a Monday, they'll have one long weekend a month to, to kind of make it easier and worthwhile for people to go back to their hometowns for that period. You're also seeing a link to the regimental charities that are making it easier to gain access to financial aid for things like fuel, energy allowances and food vouchers. What about, you mentioned accommodation is one of the other things that high, high on people's minds. And this is not necessarily a problem that is affecting society as a whole. Military accommodation has been a bone of contention for years. How often do you get people saying this simply isn't good enough? So quite a lot at the moment. We, we had a change of contract um, and we, we put in a call centre, which many people will know Pinnacle. And in that contract, we've kind of had a breakdown at the moment. Uh, their computer system, their IT system wasn't delivering what it should have done. And that's led to people not living in the best of conditions. Although we're a whole team, so I think there's a, a bit of DIO, the Defence Infrastructure Organisation, the Army and the other single services, and then Pinnacle and the delivery agents, Vivo and Amy. We've got to pull together as a team. It could be quite easy to knock each other, but actually we need to work through those initial teething issues and now to start to look after our people. And, I, and I've seen some of the good things that the organisation's done, but we need to do it quicker and faster for our people. For service families living in accommodation that isn't delivering for them. We hear time and again, why is this taking so long? We've had promises that accommodation will be improved. Do you understand that frustration? Yeah, completely and utterly. And um, I've only recently moved out of service accommodation, but I've had, like many other people, issues and concerns. And um, what I'd ask is that if they don't think they're getting the traction from the organisation, then they need to reach out to people like myself, the command sergeant majors and their chain of command to help them gain that traction. Sometimes people do fall between the gaps and they need a, a little bit more of a push than, uh, than others. And just going back to cost of living, what would you say to people who feel they're struggling with the cost of living right now and don't know where to turn? So I'd say reach out to your chain of command in the first instance. We've got welfare, we've got padres, and it's really important. I'm, I'm coming from a person that uh, post the divorce got into a lot of debt and my pride got in the way. I didn't reach out and it wasn't until I, I reached a point of real hardship that, that I, I put my hand up 
And the moment I did, it was a weight off my shoulders and having someone else's point of view helped me get through that problem. So I'd ask that everyone kind of ditches their pride. Uh, the chain of command takes the time to listen to their people and help them through these issues. Because if you hide it and keep it tucked away, it just grows and gets bigger. You get to talk to the highest chain of command in the army. Are you confident they are listening and they get it? Yeah, I think they are. I, I think um, certainly my boss uh, and the, the deputy chief of staff as well uh, are both interested in getting reports on this on, on a weekly basis, if not daily in some cases. They're really concerned about our soldiers. We're a people-based organisation and we wouldn't be the army we are without our people. So they are asking for that information all the time. And it's people like myself and the chain of command that are feeding in that truth to make sure that they really understand the, the pressure that it's putting on our people. The British Army Sergeant Major Paul Carney talking to James Hurst. And there's much more from their conversation online now in an extra edition of the SITREP podcast. We'll tell you more about that at the end of the programme. But let's bring in Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark. Mike, unlike austerity in 2010, the Chancellor in his autumn statement didn't set any restrictions, at least for now, on public sector pay. Now there's an arm's length pay review body that recommends what pay increases the armed forces get. So how does it actually work might they simply be able to recommend an increase in line with inflation next year and the MOD just has to find the cash well it depends on the government there are a lot of these independent pay review bodies now for lots for different professions because it's felt that they have to take the politics out of it and so it's okay let's have an independent pay review body that makes recommendations and the pay review body could make recommendations that the government either accepts or doesn't and sometimes of course a pay review body may make make a recommendation the government may say well okay we accept the recommendation of a, an x percent increase in salaries but there'll be no more money for that department, so you'll just have to find it by cutting something else, which is not a very satisfactory result. Or the, the pay review body may say, well, in line with what we know an organisation will have next year, this is our recommendation for what the, the levels of pay should be. It still goes back to politics ultimately. And of course, if a pay review body makes a recommendation, then it puts a bit of extra pressure on government to honour it, because then the government has got to explain, if they don't accept it, why they don't accept it. So it does add something to the public sector worker who of course you know include the, the armed forces but ultimately who pays for it is a government decision as to how much money they allocate to any given ministry mike stay with us news discussions and analysis this is sitrap it's less than two years since the government last produced a long-term master plan for defence. The integrated review set out another shake-up, updating equipment but shrinking the army. A lot has happened since then. The chaotic exit from Afghanistan, war in Ukraine and, of course, economic turmoil. And so an update to the integrated review is being drawn up urgently. There had been talk, for example, of reversing cuts to the army, but that was when the last two prime ministers were promising another boost to defence spending. Those promises seem distant history now. After the Chancellor's autumn statement, defence finds itself with its budget unchanged, but billions of pounds wiped off its actual spending power by inflation. The Prime Minister and I both recognise the need to increase defence spending. But before we make that commitment, it's necessary to revise and update the integrated review written as it was before the Ukraine invasion. And I've asked for that vital work to be completed ahead of the next budget. 
Well, we can talk now to MP Tobias Elwood, chair of the Commons Defence Committee. Um, Tobias, it wasn't a promise of more money, but it left the door ajar for it as a possibility. Is there any point in updating this integrated review if there isn't more money to go with it? Well, the review serves two purposes. One is our defence posture. What equipment do we need? What training must we focus on? I think since events in Eastern Europe and what's happening with Russia, far more aggressive than we've seen in the last decade. It's absolutely right that the integrated review provides that. But ultimately, it's all about how we look after our armed forces. They don't spend all the time on the front line. A lot of the time, they're spending in garrisons and so forth and doing operating from home. Now, they're going to be affected by the same issues that everybody else will be affected, rising costs uh, in uh, fuel, rising costs in food and so forth. They don't have the ability to go out on strike. So it's up to us to make the case for them to say their pay must increase. Not only that, but the budget itself for our armed forces, all those tanks, all those vehicles and so forth, require their own fuel. So the cost to the MOD will go up because of that. There are inflationary concerns that the uh, Treasury needs to recognise that if we want to have a capable fighting force, then we do need to increase the defence budget. And that's aside from the fact that our world is getting more dangerous, not less. And if you want Britain to have a responsible, capable, hard power, you need to invest in it. But if the reality is that savings do have to be made, where is your least worst option for that? I'm not going to start speculating on that front. I'm going to keep making the case that if you dare to bring back, you know, draw back on your defence spending, your economy actually suffers. You know, we've embraced globalisation arguably more so than other countries around the world. We require access to the South China Seas. We require access to the Black Sea and so forth. If we don't lean in and support these uh, ability to keep our economy going, all government departments suffer, not just the MOD. You say you don't want to be drawn on it, but decisions do have to be made. You must have an opinion on this. Yes, I've got a very strong opinion that we actually reduce our defence spending at our economic peril. Ukraine and that Odessa port is a great example. Just one fifth of the grain is getting out. Now, if that were to go up to you know, what it was prior to the invasion, that would actually tackle inflation here in the country. That's a utility of our hard power. That's a great example of how Britain can lead. We've heard the Defence Secretary say many times, you can't have a strong economy without strong security. But you can put it the other way around, that you can't deliver defence without a strong economy. When we hear of servicemen and women turning to food banks, looking at second jobs, is it really reasonable for the MOD to be asking for a bigger share of the nation's money? Well, as you put it very eloquently yourself, they are symbiotic. Our economy and our security, our prosperity leans on the fact that we have access to those international markets, like I say. And as I say, our world world is getting more dangerous not less. We have to protect uh, our assets around us, our interests around us. Look what happened to Nord Stream 1 and the impact that had on gas prices. What would happen if one of those interconnectors coming to the UK from Norway, for example, were to be sabotaged and blown up? People would have straight away look at the Navy and say, why aren't you defending what's important to us? We learned from the mini budget, maybe we have to wait for more money and suck up savings now, though. You have to be realistic, don't you? We do. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I know that we're in a queue with other departments, but I won't stop saying the connection between the importance of having uh, hard power, uh, utility to be able to convene other nations to you know, follow us as well, to stand up to aggressors, uh, and the consequence that will happen if we don't 
to our economy. Tobias, integrated review, best case scenario, worst case scenario. Well, the worst case is that we just bimble on as we as we do, and we don't repair what happened at the last integrated review, where you saw a cut in the armed forces numbers, a cut in tanks and the APCs, a cut in ships and planes as well. We need to reverse those at a minimal. So the best case scenario clearly would be moving towards 3% GDP. I just remind you that during the Cold War, we were up to 4% GDP. And our world is more dangerous than that. Tobias Elwood, MP, Chair of the Commons Defence Committee. Well, let's bring Mike Clark back in and also Ed Arnold, former British Army Infantry Officer, now Research Fellow at Defence Think Tank Rusi. Mike, are you picking up any word on your grapevines of how the review of the review is going and what it might end up meaning for the forces? Uh, well, not much so far. There's a lot of uh, complaints from outside that the terms of reference aren't very clear. The, a, a letter was written only just last week from the Rethinking Security Group and also the United Nations Association here uh, in Britain saying, you know, we don't know anything about this. There's no consultation going on. We don't know what terms of reference you're working to. The Defence Committee in the Commons that Tobias Elwood, of course, is chair of has going, been going back and forth with the government and they've been very critical in the defence committee that the review process doesn't seem to have taken very much account of Ukraine and all of the things that have changed and the foreign affairs committee has just launched an inquiry into the review of the review so here we are we don't know very much about it at the moment the review of the review was announced by Prime Minister Liz Truss in September um, but I can't tell you at the moment what the terms of reference seem to be. Ed might have a better idea than me, um, mm. or indeed what the time scale is for this. Ed Arnold, how much is at stake for the armed forces in this update to the integrated review? Well, I think there is a lot at stake uh, for the armed forces specifically and for defence policy. And in terms of what I know about the review, uh, in terms of timeframes, so it looks like the, the integrated review, so that is the Global Britain in the Competitive Age document, which will be hopefully published sometime in January. And then there'll be a subsequent um, review of the Defence Command paper. And I haven't actually heard anything on the Defence and Security Industrial Strategy, which is the third part. But specifically for the armed forces, I think the real key need here is a real net assessment on Russian uh, military capability. I think the net assessment prior to Ukraine was focused on the physical and the conceptual components of fighting power, but not the moral component, which has proved uh, decisive the fact that Russia has lacked that moral component and Ukraine uh, has exceeded expectations in, in that regard. But also in terms of the stockpiles and more the industrial base, which is you know, provided significant amounts of equipment, which the UK also need. So for me, this review is less about the foreign policy. It's less about the strategy. This is more a sort of programmatic review in terms of the Defence Command paper. And it's trying to allocate sufficient funding for our ambition. And as you've written a piece for Rusi, arguing the government's got this the wrong way round, that it's the money that needs sorting first. Normally, that's how it's done on the face of it. But actually, doesn't it make more sense to allocate the money when we've properly set out what we need to do? Well, it's not necessarily just the money. It's also the, the effort. I mean, don't underestimate the staffing effort that is required to produce a review, um, and even one that is supposedly short, sort of 10 to 15 pages. It takes a lot of effort. So in terms of reduced effort across UK national security. My argument is that we need to 
really focus just on the defence command paper elements and the defence policy part, because that is the one that we now have far more data uh, due to the war in Ukraine that we had previously when the integrated review was first done. And I'd also argue that it's already been updated to a certain degree because we've had NATO's new strategic concept uh, agreed at the Madrid summit in June this year, which had the commitment to defend every inch of NATO territory, which is actually significantly different to prior. And also in March, we had the defence contribution in the High North paper as well. So actually, I think a lot of this has already been updated again from a strategy perspective. The key part now is making sure that the capabilities uh, part of it is sorted. And Mike, what do you think are the big questions that this update needs to answer? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure um, Ed Arnold is right that it's all about capabilities. That's the real thing. I mean, you know, if you look at what's happened since the integrated review of March 2021 on the defence elements, too much was promised. And so the, the focus now is on, well, what can be delivered? And I'm sure that's what, you know, Ed's work is getting at, really. It's capabilities. We promise far too much uh, in 2021 in light of circumstances, what's changed internationally, what's changed economically. So how much of that can be delivered as against what the most immediate threats are? Because undoubtedly, you know, we've got to concentrate on Europe and the, the North Atlantic much more than we might have imagined. I don't think the MOD would have any problem with that, but Downing Street might have, because it's our neighbourhood. It's where the biggest threats now lie. And then what do you think the most likely outcomes of this review will be? Well, I think, in, I mean, in terms of the time frames and the fact that it is sort of billed as a, of a refresh, I'm not sure. I mean, there'll be some changes to the language, you know, and probably mainly actually around China. I don't think there'll be a lot of focus on Russia because Russia is already enemy number one in the integrated review and that's not going to change. But I mean, my point is, if you're going to change from systematic to, say, strategic competitor or even what was muted um, a couple of months ago is actually labelling China a threat at one point, what practical changes does that mean? You know, w would it change the route of a carrier strike group when it next goes to the Indo-Pacific? I'm not too sure. Would it change the view of the commanders of Operation Cumbrit in Estonia? Again, I'm not too sure. And actually, when you look at the language, the integrated review is one of the first such reviews which then followed the NATO strategic concept that I've already mentioned, where there might be some or an opportunity to make some changes. I mean, one that I'd highlight is the UK-EU defence and security relationship, which in the integrated review was very sort of coldly worded as when it's in our interest to do so. The strategic compass, which came out in March, which is the EU sort of comparable document, said that they were open to a wide-ranging um, defence and security cooperation agreement with the UK. And I think the EU has changed as a security and defence actor, and it's no longer just uh, UK third participation in potential EU missions. And we've just joined the PESCO EU military mobility project. So there's actually quite a lot there that could be enhanced. But I mean, going back to my point, I don't think this needs a review. If you wanted to put in an agreement with the UK EU, you can do that through either speeches or a specific joint statement. You don't necessarily have to do it in a review of the review. Well, one thing we do know is we'll be coming back to this subject. Ed Arnold, really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. This is Sidrep. One of the big ideas from the integrated review, which probably won't change, is new UK armed forces hubs around the world. One of them is at Duckham, and Simon Newton has been to see the new £30 million base as it grows. 
It's known as the Pearl of Arabia. British forces have trained and at times fought in Oman for decades. And now that partnership's set to deepen, with the UK investing millions building a logistics base here, part of the MOD's new network of global hubs. This is probably our strongest relationship in the region, if not the world, in many respects. My father fought with the Omani army in the 1960s, and uh, I've been coming backwards and forwards from Oman throughout my career, and uh, that is, I think, representative of the strength of the relationship between our, our two nations. Here in Oman to see two Scots battle group exercising alongside the Omani army is Lieutenant General Sir Ralph Woodis, the commander of Britain's field army. The Middle East is, is still a, an important and a really important part of the world. Uh, for us and indeed for the world. And uh, you've mentioned Syria, uh, but we also have an ongoing conflict in Yemen, and there is a degree of hostility between uh, Iran and some of the Gulf states and indeed some of the, uh, some of the other states across the world that uh, we all need to be conscious of and not exclusively focus on that which is going on in our own backyard. Because there could be a perception amongst the general public, they've seen the Afghanistan departure, that we've kind of left the Middle East now and that's kind yeah. of done, 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 done with it. No, far, far from it. Uh, we, are, we are heavily invested in the Middle East and will continue to be so. The vast desert training area here covers one and a half thousand square miles. With UK troops now coming here more frequently, they built a full-size medical centre at Duckham. Here they also operate a medevac helicopter, with Omani pilots flying British military medics. From a medical point of view, the more and more troops we have, have out here, the more the real-life support and the evac capability will need to expand. Wing Commander Nat Lonsdale is one of the emergency doctors on board the MERT. At the moment we have um, a number of troops that are way out on the range and they provide sort of the real-life support and the evacuation of the lower-level casualties back to the medical centre and then you have medics, nurses and doctors at the med centre as well. In 2017, a deal was signed allowing the Royal Navy access to the port of Duckham, 350 miles south of Muscat. Here, Oman is investing $10 billion building a deep water facility, an international airport and the biggest economic zone in the Middle East. And Duckham is where the British military is building its new logistics hub. This area is being prepared for the next stage of that process as this facility triples in size over the next few years, creating a self-contained military base and for Britain a more sizeable and permanent presence here in Oman. This land regional hub, as it's called, is already home to a contingent of British forces, from mechanics to medics. Among them is reservist Amadeep Shergill. Back in the Midlands, he works in demolition. Here, he's supplying the troops with everything from clothing to tyres. Being able to be put in a new group of people on each exercise and leaving the country with a new set of people every time, it kind of opens you up to be a bit more vocal and being able to talk to like a vast group of people. Oman's regarded as a regional power balancer, the Switzerland of the Middle East, able to remain on good terms with both Saudi Arabia, for instance, and its arch-adversary Iran. This hub at Duckham is the first permanent British base here since 1971. Evidence of just how important the UK believes this relationship and this regional mediator remains. Simon Newton in Oman for SITREP. Well, let's get a final thought from Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Simon mentions there Oman's role as a regional mediator. Could it be that football, the World Cup, also is helping thaw some regional tensions? Notably, we've seen the Saudi Crown Prince at the opening ceremony in Qatar's Emir draped in a Saudi flag during their victory over Argentina. Could this be approving a, a good reason for hosting the tournament in Qatar, despite all the many real concerns, Mike? <laughs> yes, well, I mean, the World Cup 
Robin Catter will always be an eccentric um, event, I think, for those reasons. But it's not wrong in the sense that the Gulf is much more important now than it's ever been before geopolitically. You know, I mean, our, our, our focus on the, on the Middle East for 40 odd years has always been on Israel and the Palestinians and Syria and latterly mm. on, on terrorist issues in the Levant. But if you look at the, the resources and the geopolitical elements, the Gulf is far more important. And Saudi Arabia and Iran, you know, they're, they're both um, adversaries, real adversaries, but they, as it were, create the political weather for everybody else. And if we're looking at the future of, of, of stability in the Middle East and the Middle East as a junction between Europe and Asia, then the Gulf is far more important than anything that happens really in the, in the eastern Mediterranean around the Israeli border. So in that respect, I think the Duckham Regional Hub is exactly the right thing to do. As always, the challenge will be to make it, make it a proper reality as opposed to a, a good aspiration. Professor Michael Clark, thanks so much. Good to speak to you. And my thanks to all of our guests. And before we go, a reminder, there's an extra edition of the SITREP podcast online now with much more from the Army Sergeant Major's conversation with James Hurst. There's some battalions that are massive and they're going to slim down. Are you concerned that's going to mean more pressure on individuals? I'm always worried that we'll overwork our workforce. Do you miss being where they are and doing what they're doing? I do. There's times when I look out and it's rainy and I'm not missing living under (laughs) a poncho. How much progress do you think has been made in driving out unacceptable behaviours? You always have a way to go. We have to embed our values and standards into people from day one. I'm a classic soldier. I haven't done all things right. I've messed up throughout my career. What has probably helped get me where I am is that I've always owned up to my failures. Honest man. And you can find that extra edition of SITREP at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. We'll be back for another SITREP next Thursday. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. 